and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Do you ever pay attention to how the leading man or woman enters a movie or play, and then connect that entrance to the character's journey? Teaching team member Caleb Click brings us this sermon entitled, The Wonder of His Entry, which covers Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 17. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. Our scripture reading today comes from Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 17. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and the new wine the young women. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. O make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip in conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. Gracious Father, we pray, would you come through your spirit and speak in such a way in your word that, Lord, we would truly exclaim what Zechariah does at the very end of this passage, Lord, how great is your goodness and how great is your beauty. Show us, Jesus, comfort our grieving hearts, and would we feel the balm of the gospel on our wounded souls. Would you do this in the precious name of your Son? Amen. In 1903... Bertrand Russell wrote this really bleak little essay called A Free Man's Worship, where he cast his eyes on the world around him, and based on what his eyes could see, he concluded that there was no good God with a good plan for his people. Instead, as he looked at this world full of death and despair and sorrow and brokenness, what he saw was a cold and indifferent universe in which humanity was just this sort of blade of grass tossed around by the wind. And all of our accomplishments, the cumulative accomplishments of all of mankind through all of history, they were just a speck of dust that would be ground beneath the foot of an unconscious power. And he concluded that the person who was wise the person who saw the world as it actually was, 
the only thing that they could do based on that information, it was build their life not on hope, but instead on what he called the firm foundation of unyielding despair. Now, that's a bummer of a way to start a Palm Sunday. <laughs> you know, this, this is typically a Sunday of celebration. This is when the children line the aisles and they wave the palm branches and they join their voices with the crowds who lined the streets when Jesus entered Jerusalem singing that song from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. But on weeks like this week, with news like the news Jeff just spoke of, of a sister church and a sister school that are grieving even this morning the loss of six precious lives. Three eight and nine-year-old little children and three adults. Those praises stick in our throats a little bit, don't they? And we wonder if maybe Russell was not so foolish after all. Because where is the hope in this? Because here, here's the reality that confronts us every single day if we have eyes to see it. The evil that Covenant Prez experienced on Monday morning, it was vile and gross, an unjust act. But it is just a small taste of the sin and violence and death and despair that overflow in this world, isn't it? It is a drop in the bucket compared to the brokenness that surrounds us every single day. There's a reason that what unites all religions, no matter which one they might be, though they would disagree on a whole bunch of other things, all of them unite on this one point. There is something profoundly wrong with this world that we live in. We feel it in our bones. Every generation from Adams to this one in ways large and small has felt that at the core of our being. Something is not right. Something needs to be fixed. Something is not the way it is supposed to be. And while that reality, at times it makes those praises in Psalm 118 and on Palm Sunday stick in our throats, it is that same reality that makes what Jesus is announcing on the day of his entry all the more important. On Palm Sunday, the crowds, they are singing and dancing at the sight of the king they think is going to set them all free. He's going to restore Israel to glory. He's going to conquer their enemies. And as has been said a thousand times before, what they expected, it was partly true, but mostly not. And Jesus with every word that he speaks and every step that he takes, Jesus says, I am that king, but I have come to do something far deeper and far more profound. I have come not to bring a superficial healing to a superficial wound, but a healing that is as deep as the oceans and as high as the heavens, one that takes those who are prisoners of despair and turns them into something better still, what Zechariah 9 verse 12 calls prisoners of hope. Because in all four Gospels, 
Every one of them with slightly different versions of how Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. All of them record this one very peculiar, very strange thing. Jesus could have entered into Jerusalem in any way that he wanted. He could have hidden himself as he does on other occasions. He could have entered on foot as he seems to have done on most other times when he went into villages and into towns. He, he could have risen to the crowd's expectations. And he could have had his disciples go and find him the biggest, baddest war horse there was. And yet, what does Jesus do? As all four gospel writers make sure we see and know he did. Jesus enters Jerusalem not as one hidden, not as one on foot, not on a horse, but on a donkey. And if you are an attentive reader at all, that should make your ears perk up and should immediately lead you to the question of why. The answer is hinted at in all four of the gospel accounts. But two of them, Matthew and John, they name it explicitly. Jesus is deliberately identifying himself as this very particular figure from a very particular prophecy. This figure of a king who will come to his people and bring great joy. Who will come to a people who have lost all hope, who are wondering if God has forgotten them because they have suffered in the exile and God in grace has brought them back and now they live in a world that is just ashes compared to what it once was. People who are wondering, God, how could you possibly fix and redeem this? And this king comes and he in many ways meets all the expectations of the crowd. As Zechariah 9 describes it in verses 10 on, his kingdom expands from one end of the earth to the other. It is from sea to sea, ocean to ocean. It brings hope to the hopeless and freedom for prisoners. He conquers God's enemies in such a profound way that they become stepping stones beneath the feet of God's people. And God's people who have struggled with sin and unrighteousness through their entire existence, suddenly through the work of this king sent by God, they are made to shine like jewels in God's crown in the midst of a land that knows peace. It's the picture of a king who heals and renews and restores every single broken thing that exists. He is what they expect and even more, and yet right at the heart of the passage, there is this one verse that throws a stick into the spoke of the wheels of their expectations. Zechariah 9, verse 9. This verse that tells us the character of the king. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. There's a reason that in the Dead Sea Scrolls and their descriptions of the coming Messiah, not one of them mentions Zechariah 9.9. Because how could a king who looks like that accomplish a salvation that sounds like the one we just heard? And yet what is Jesus saying by climbing on the back of that donkey? 
I am that king. There is a puzzle here that as we continue to live in this land of death and despair where we sorrow and we grieve, there is a puzzle here we need to understand because its answer gives hope in the midst of our despair. Because who is the king who has come? First, he's the king who has come as the righteous for the unrighteous. Behold, verse 9, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Right from the start, Zechariah wants you to hear this king, he is unlike any king that Israel has ever had and any person that you have ever encountered. This king is righteous. Now, if you have ever in your life worked in an office where you had a a boss who was not a person of integrity, or shall we say a person of health, you know immediately why this would matter. Because what is that universal truth that all of us know? As goes the leader, so goes the organization. If you have someone who is not a person of integrity, who they are bleeds down into the entire institution. If you have a leader who is a liar, you become an organization that traffics in lies because you have to defend those lies or pretend that they're true. If you have a leader who is domineering, what kind of culture results? A culture of fear and intimidation. And it is true of corporations, it's true of politics, it's true of families, even churches. And the greater the unhealth and the greater the influence that person has, the greater the damage their unhealthy leadership has. Zechariah 9 says that's not this king. Because here is a king who embodies in his person the very righteousness of God who embodies it in a way that is not static, but overflows into everything that he does. He wears, as Isaiah says, righteousness as his belt. It exudes from his every thought, his every word, and his every deed. He is truthful and kind. He is compassionate and just. He is faithful in everything that he does. He protects the poor and lifts up the oppressed. He bends down to care for the widow and for the orphan to provide for those who are in need. He is one who in every way is the righteousness of God in the midst of the world and what bleeds down from this leader. It is not death and despair. It is life and hope. His presence brings peace. He is what Adam was designed to be but failed to be in the fall. He's the kind of king Israel was supposed to have but never actually did. He's the kind of people Israel was supposed to be and never actually was. And here's what we have a hard time admitting. He's the kind of person we are supposed to be, but never actually have been. Because who is the righteous one? Not us. Who are we? We are the children of Adam's disobedience, among whom there are none righteous, as Scripture says, not even one. 
sin pervades everything that we do, even our supposedly best works. And when we look at this world, that world that made Bertrand Russell despair, here is what we need to grasp. The reason the world is the way it is is because we are the way that we are. Because just as the righteousness of a king brings flourishing to his people, so too do unrighteous people bring sin and brokenness into the world. And what world do we inhabit? One where there has been generation after generation after generation after generation after generation of unrighteous people exerting their authority over their little spheres of influence and creating sin and despair and death and brokenness everywhere that they go. We don't just need to be saved from the world out there. We need to be saved from ourselves. And that, that's what makes this king and what he brings so compelling. Because what does the passage say? Behold your king, your king. He is coming to you. Who's the to you? It's not righteous people. Because of those, there's but one. It's the unrighteous. People just like you and just like me. And what does the king bear? Salvation. Righteous and having salvation is he. And right here, the puzzle emerges. Because that phrase, having salvation is he, in the Hebrew, it doesn't refer to a person who holds salvation like a possession. It's not this object that he has and then can dispense to whomever he wants to give it. No, in the Hebrew, what is being described here, it is someone for whom salvation is something they have received. And here's where the mystery enters. Why would a righteous king, the one righteous person who has ever lived, why would they need to be saved? And yet in their salvation, they become not only the saved one, but somehow mysteriously in Zechariah 9, they become the Savior. His salvation means our own. The question is why? And then the puzzle just deepens. Because not only is the king the righteous one who's come for the unrighteous, he is also the humble one who has come for the proud. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You want to know why the Dead Sea Scrolls skipped that verse? That's why. The king is humble. Just think about this for a moment. If God, I shouldn't say it that way, if you were asked to dream up your perfect vision of someone who is supposed to save you from the greatest evil and enemy you have ever known, how high on your list of qualifications would humility be? When's the last time that you voted for somebody because you thought, no, that's the humblest of them all? What are the things that we usually think are precious when it comes to a leader? Strength. We want someone who exudes confidence. 
We want somebody who looks like he's going to crush our enemies and not be crushed by them. But that's not this king. Zechariah 9.9 says, no, he's humble. He embodies a word that is translated elsewhere as gentle and poor and afflicted. He is one, a king who does not elevate himself above his people, but descends to be with his people and to suffer as they suffer. He's a king who, unlike so many of Israel's past kings, does not elevate himself above God's word and God's will, but submits himself to it in every single way. He is one who, as Calvin says, comes with no defenses, no earthly fortress, He carries no sword and he carries no shield. He is exposed to every kind of earthly injury. A person who seems so vulnerable on the surface that you would doubt whether or not they are even a king, let alone a king who could save. And yet, the very next line tells you that a king this person most certainly is, and not just a king, the king. Because what is he writing? That thing Jesus, in all four Gospels, goes out of his way to procure a donkey. Now, we got to stop there for just a moment because that's weird. Culturally, we've seen the movies, we've read the books, we know the fairy tales. What do kings ride on? Horses. Big and powerful ones at that. And who rides donkeys? Poor people do. Laborers do. But here's what we need to grasp. In most cultures and at most times, those assumptions might be right. But that was not the assumption of Israel. In Israel... It's and something you will see if you read through the Old Testament. Your eyes kind of glaze over it, and you probably have never noticed it. Notice how often kings and princes and judges show up riding not on horses, but on donkeys. It's the preferred mount of kings, especially when they come with peace. And there are a lot of reasons why, but the greatest of them is this. All the way back in Genesis 49, God made a promise. He promised through Jacob that out of the tribe of Judah, a king was going to come. There is this forecasting of the future Davidic kingdom and the messianic kingdom that would come from that. And that king, whose scepter would come from Judah, that king is described as riding into his vineyard on, you guessed it, a donkey, that he then ties to one of his vines before he begins to enjoy the fruit of his vineyard. I want you to hear this language because it is almost an exact parallel, both in English and in the Hebrew of Zechariah 9. Verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Just two, two times basically emphasizing the same thing. It's one animal. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grace. Now, do you hear the similarity to Zechariah 9.9? Zechariah is saying, that king is this one. 
And what flows from this king who comes humble and mounted on a donkey? Verse 10, peace. Overwhelming, all-encompassing peace. Peace to Israel, peace to the world, peace everywhere that this king goes, everywhere that his kingdom expands to, all of the earth encompassed by this overwhelming, powerful peace. And here is what we have to see. How does the peace come? Not with a sword, but through the king's speech. He speaks peace to the nations. And right here, right here is where we start understanding what Jesus is doing. Because on Palm Sunday, what does Jesus do? The son of David, who is also the son of God, climbs on the back of a donkey and rides into Jerusalem, the capital city of a nation that all through the Old Testament is called God's what? Vineyard. And what happens when God in human flesh enters the temple in Jerusalem? People should be falling on their faces and worshiping because God is back in his home. And yet, what do we see instead? The religious leaders challenge him. And Jesus proceeds to tell this parable. Matthew 21, verses 33 to 46 a master comes, or a master builds a vineyard. He builds a wall, he plants a vine, and then he entrusts it to tenants who were supposed to watch over and take care of his vineyard until the time comes for the master to get his fruit. But when he sends his servants at the right time to get the fruit from his vineyard, from his tenants, what do those tenants do? Jesus says those tenants decide they want the fruit for themselves, and so they reject the, 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 the servants. They beat the servants. They kill the servants. They stone the servants. And no matter how many servants the master sends, they do it over and over and over again in such a way there is no hiding what kind of people they are. These are arrogant, prideful, wicked people until finally the master decides he will give them one more chance and he will send someone that surely they will respect and surely they will listen to. He sends his son. Now pause right here. I think we read over this parable so quickly we miss this glaring reality that is staring us in the face. The master's not dumb. The son's not dumb. The character of the tenants, it's, it's known. They have beaten and stoned and killed every person that has come from the very beginning to now. What makes them think at this moment it will be any different? They know what's going to happen when the son goes into the vineyard, and yet what does the father do? He sends the son anyway, and what does the son do? He goes humbly with no defense carrying no sword and no shield, exposed to every kind of earthly injury, and what do the tenants do? They murder him. And Jesus asks the religious leaders, what do you think the master should do? And with one voice, 
they say he should kill those wicked, ungrateful servants and give the vineyard to someone else. And Jesus, in essence, in the words that follows, says, don't you see that's what you're doing right now? You want to see the depths of human sin and at the same time the heights of God's mercy? It's right here. Jesus knew what was coming when he rode into his vineyard on his donkey. And yet, what did Jesus do? He rode in anyways, with no defense. No sword and no shield exposed to every earthly injury. And we killed him. You know, it's really easy to read this text and to look at the religious leaders and think, why would they do a thing like that? That would never be me. Let me ask you a question. What happens when Jesus comes near to something that you hold precious? Does your heart rejoice? Or do your walls of defense go up? What happens when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no way to the Father except through me? Does your heart sing or does it bristle? What happens when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me? Do you look at all the things you found your life in and say, God, I willingly, freely, I throw them all away because you are all I need and want, or do instead, do we cling to those things all the more tightly still? And what is revealed in answer to every one of those questions, it is hearts that just like the religious leaders are not knit to Jesus's, but rather opposed to him in every way. And the judgment they pronounced on themselves is a judgment that we ourselves deserve because of sin. And yet, here's the beauty of what Jesus is proclaiming by riding on that donkey. Who has the king come for? You, the righteous for the unrighteous, the humble for the proud, and here is where all the puzzle pieces suddenly snap into place because who is Jesus revealed to be on Passion Week? He is the one who in humility suffers, not for his sins, but for ours. He's the righteous servant of Isaiah 53 who is pierced not for his transgressions, but for our own, who is crushed not for his iniquities, but for our own, who gives himself willingly over to death so that the unrighteous might become righteous. In his humility on Friday, Jesus is crucified, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And then on Sunday morning, what happens? The righteous king who became the humble king, he rises and becomes the saved one who is our savior. And what is the fruit of Jesus' work? All the gospels speak of it. 
all the epistles scream it. Peace. The peace we long for. The peace we crave. Zechariah 9 says that peace, it is in the person of the crucified and resurrected King who came the righteous for the unrighteous, the humble for the proud, who became the saved one so that he could be for us the Savior. The one who says to us in our despair, I am your stronghold, I am your life, I am your hope, flee to me. Because in Christ, there is peace with God because he has already borne his sins in his body, or our sins in his body. In Christ, though we are clothed in unrighteousness and shame and guilt, we are clothed instead with the beauty and the righteousness of another, the righteous king who came for us. In Christ, we have peace not only with God, we have peace with each other because in his body of flesh and his death on the cross, he has torn down the dividing wall of hostility and out of two, he is now made one. In Christ, we have peace as we face the future because in his body, his death and his resurrection, he has defeated sin and death so completely that one day he will invite us into a world where they exist no more. A place where there is no more sorrow and no more tears, no more shootings, no more grieving parents, no more grieving churches, but the glorious presence of the God who so loved us that he sent the beloved son and a son who so loved us that he humbly submitted even to death so that we would build our lives not on the shifting sands of unyielding despair but instead on the firm foundation of resurrection hope. Close with this. At the very end of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, there's this moment where one of the heroes, a hobbit named Sam, is drowning in despair. If you don't know the story, he's been sent with his friend Frodo to throw the ring of power into the fires of Mount Doom and thereby saving the world from this evil that threatens to destroy them all. But while Sam and Frodo, they've come a long way, every step they take is one where there's this feeling that they will not succeed and instead they are going to die and fail. It is a feeling that presses down on them heavier and heavier and heavier. And Sam, as he looks around at this world that with every step gets darker, that with every step gets more evil, that with every step gets more bleak, he begins to despair that they will ever do the thing they have been called to do. Hope is dead. But then in the very midst of the darkness, sitting in a land where there is no life and only death, Sam looks up to the heavens and he sees something. There peeping among the cloud rack, above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. 
the beauty of it smote his heart. As he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. His song in the tower had been defiance rather than hope. Now for a moment, his own fate and even his master's ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side. And putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. By mounting on that donkey, Jesus says to us, I am that light. And though you live in a world of darkness, though you feel forgotten and abandoned, though you think there is no more hope, though tomorrow we may wake up to news that is even worse than the news that we heard this week, if that light is shined, then while we grieve and we mourn, we don't do that as those who despair because the light has come and it has entered the darkness and the light will not and cannot be overcome. We have a stronghold who turns prisoners of despair into prisoners of hope. And his name is Jesus. And he presents himself to us as the righteous for the unrighteous, the humble for the proud, the saved one who would be for you even today your Savior. Let's go to him now. Father, we are so grateful that we have a God who has loved us in Christ. Lord, who has not abandoned us to our sin or condemned us as we deserve, but rather, Lord, one who came through his Son to save. And we pray, Lord, would you bind our hearts to your own? Would you give us the comfort that only you can? Would you turn our eyes to the one who is himself the resurrection and the life? Would you make our hearts sing? Maybe with broken praise, but with sure praise, because we know the one in whom we've believed. Would you do this now in Jesus' name? You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.